Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me talking to you in New York. But quickly, we're going to go back in time to Austin, Texas, where I talked to Ben Smith at BuzzFeed. Um, There's a lot of stuff we talked about that was in the news then. Still in the news now. You're going to like it. But before we go there, one quick note. If this is the kind of interview you like hearing, and you do because you're listening to this podcast, you will want to join me at Code Media. November 18th and 19th in Hollywood. We're going to talk to people just like Ben Smith, people who run big, important media and tech organizations. Uh, who do we have there? John Stanky runs Warner Media. You've heard of that. Nancy Dubuque runs Vice. Roger Lynch runs Condé Nast. Uh, Carolyn Everson runs Revenue for Facebook. If you're interested in media and tech, if you're listening to this podcast, this is the kind of thing you want to check out. You can go to our website, recode.net, and find out more. See you soon. Hello, everyone. I'm Peter Kafka. This is the guy you came to see. This is Ben Smith. Hi, Ben. Hi. Ben was up very early this morning to make this to make this appearance. Thank you. W- wouldn't miss it. Um, in return for you getting up at the crack of dawn, I want to give you some some airtime here. You tweeted this morning. You said, "I suppose it would be churlish to write a letter to the editor of the Whistleblower's account, insisting he credit BuzzFeed News for some great reporting." Yes. So let's do that now. Pat oh, yourself on the back. You. Explain at, why at, the whistleblower's account is relevant length, to, to BuzzFeed at News. At any length. Um, I mean, I guess I, I, I probably, I, some of you have also probably spent the morning reading the, this very well-written whistleblower report on, on Trump's pressuring the Ukrainian president. But there's a, a large subplot of it is Rudy Giuliani running around Eastern Europe with a couple of Ukrainian guys trying to make mischief. It's a and, good movie, right? And, and, and foot- Terrible for democracy, but yeah. a good movie. <laughs> yes. Um, it's kind of a gonzo screwball comedy. Um, and anyway, the, well, footnote number nine and subsequent footnotes in the whistleblower report refers to a story by the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, which is a, it was a collaboration. He just cited the OCCRP, you know, appropriately, their account. And, but I would have, had, he been, had this been a news article, I would have written to him and said, hey, could you please include a hyperlink to BuzzFeed News, because actually that was our reporter who got that reporting, Mike Sala. And so explain what, what the story was. Just It's, it's important for context here. Um, you know, the story, and I think it's, just, it's a complicated enough story that I think I probably don't want to narrate it here, but um, just basically it, it's that Giuliani has been, you know, on Trump as Trump's personal lawyer running a private investigation into Joe Biden based on allegations that a former Ukrainian prosecutor general made and then retracted about 
that he had been fired to cover up for Joe Biden's son's misdeeds in Ukraine. That narrative appears to be totally false. Joe Biden's son, Hunter, was making $50,000 a month on the board of a company that is, I don't know what they were paying him for. Or being a board member is a good gig, often. It is a good gig. Being, and, and every... And, and the adult children of presidents and vice presidents, somebody's always getting into trouble. So the reason I think it's good to start talking about the whistleblower report and your reporting here uh, Thursday morning, when people hear this in their ears, it'll be a week later, and who knows if a we'll have a republic later. at that point. Yes. Um, but today it's the news. President Pence will just be settling in. And could be. And to me, it sums up a couple things. One, that you guys do very serious reporting, even though people still think of BuzzFeed as the place for cat listicles, et cetera. And you guys do very serious reporting. It's serious enough that a whistleblower is citing you in a memorandum, not crediting you properly, but he's still citing your work. So you guys are doing real work. um, And I think that you feel that even in 2019, BuzzFeed News is not getting enough credit, both from the general public and even from the media elites and Washington elites for doing real work? Oh, I actually wouldn't say that. Um, that was I mean, big I'm, softball I served I'm, for you. Know, I, I, don't, I think actually at this point we, we, you, we are getting enough credit, and certainly from people who care a lot about the news and follow the news and are obsessed with the news. I think there are corners of the national security establishment, I would say, that are a little backward-looking in their approach and don't appreciate us the way they ought to. But no, I think in general... I think people who care a lot about the kinds of stories we cover, which, you know, isn't every story. We don't have a big Wall Street bureau, but we're all over stories about the Internet, about misinformation, about, you know, elements of the Trump-Russia story, tech in Silicon Valley, elements of the media story, you know, competing with you guys. Um, yeah, no, we, we, people have sort of stopped making the cat jokes in that context. But we always, we always kind of liked the cat jokes. We also continue to really own the cat story. I, was, I, I can't remember if I took a screenshot of your front page last night. And you did have an impeachment story there, but there was also a here are our 20 tweets you can enjoy for free. And there, I think yeah. there was some cat video. It's the nature of BuzzFeed, right? You're yeah. going to have cat stories, you're going to have yeah, Russian stories. We, although it's interesting, I do think over time it's changed a bit. I think if, you, if we'd been having this conversation five years ago, I would have said, you know, people like the crazy mix of stories. Everyone wants that. It's what you see in your Facebook news feed, and isn't that great? I think that may have been true at the time. It's not true now. I think people want a lot, are disoriented and alienated by that kind of con- totally confused media space and really see the downside of it now. And we've definitely done a lot to separate things that we used to sh- jam together. We have a separate BuzzFeed News site and URL, and it's mixed into the BuzzFeed site, but also just the branding is much clearer and all those things that I think is sort of what we heard from our audience. Right, so you think there's a distinct BuzzFeed News audience that comes to BuzzFeed News to read BuzzFeed News as opposed to someone who just got something in, well, there's a bunch of different places, but you think they, there's a core part of your audience that gets that what you do is different than here are some great things to decorate your dorm room with. I guess I would say, I think, yeah, I think in general people are pretty, our audience knows what they're getting, but I think they also want to know what they're getting. Is this a serious news story? Is this a joke? You want to know the difference. And let's do some history. When did you come to BuzzFeed? Um, January 1st, 2012. So it was cat listicles then? Totally. Almost entirely. Oh, absolutely. When we started with, and I wrote some high-minded announcement about how we were going to cover politics, the, uh, what's now you know, the most boring election in American history. But at the time, it seemed exciting, the Romney-Obama election. And I wrote all these words and published it, and they were all like stacked on top of each other. And I, I, and I called up Chris Johansson, our head of product, and said, what the hell? And he said, oh, we've never really published words before. And so... <laughs> If you write that many words, they just all kind of like fall together. But then the thing that was amazing and totally different from any experience I'd ever had before was that by three in the morning, that, that was midnight, and he was sitting next to me at, at our Christmas party, at New Year's Eve party. And 
by like two in the morning, it was all unscrambled and fine. Because they had people who knew how to do things on the internet. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so, and again, you came from a background where you'd been online, you're sort of an early blogger. Yep. You got digital, you got online, so you didn't need to be convinced of that. But I'm assuming it took some convincing to get you to come to the catalystical place where you wanted to cover politics and eventually, you know, oh, malfeasance yeah. at the highest levels. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, right. When I, I had was probably vaguely aware of BuzzFeed, but had not been a big consumer of it. Where were you at Politico? When I was at Politico, yeah. yeah. I was pretty like one track mind political reporter. And, so, and when I met Jonah Peretti, my boss, who's, who thinks very, very abstractly about media. Founder like, and CEO of BuzzFeed. Yeah, and I think maybe better than anybody has been able to kind of see around the corners of the media landscape, but also speaks very abstractly about media. And we had this lunch, and I really had no idea what he was talking about. He was Sounds talking right. about, you know, social media and um, distribution and things where I was like, no, I'm trying to write stories and have people on Twitter read them. You know, like that was sort of the extent of my sophistication. And I think, and I kind of went home and, Tried to explain to my wife that I had lunch with this weird guy and hadn't really understood what he was saying, but I think he offered me a job, but I obviously was not going to take it. And she was like, she also kind of works in our business, was like, no, no, I'm like, here's what he was saying, you should take that job. But the thing that was, that what I was doing shared with what BuzzFeed was doing then was BuzzFeed was really experimenting with the idea that what, you're, what most people were doing was opening up a browser, then not your phone, and going to facebook.com, twitter.com, Pinterest, I guess not Pinterest yet, but stumbleupon.com, yeah. these sort of big kind of aggregated sites and social networks, and that your challenge as a, as a publisher was not primarily to build your own destination, it was to do stuff that would cut through on those platforms. And in the sort of more abstract sense, that was, you know, on Facebook, that was lists of dogs who were disappointed in you. And on Twitter, it was scoops, and that was what I liked to do. And I had noticed that nobody was coming to my blog anymore. I was just using the blog as a repository for stuff that I would hope would go viral on Twitter because it was new. When they hired you, uh, media Twitter got very excited, and that was part of the fun of it. Part of, of the fun, and main reason I took the job. Sometimes I'm, I'm correctly described as skeptical, or maybe even cynical. Uh-huh. I thought, oh, I've seen this playbook before. Jonah Preddy came from Huffington Post. Yeah. Huffington Post used to have a bunch of weird stuff, and at some point they decided they wanted to be taken more seriously. They went out and started yeah. hiring people from brand name publications. You can capitalize all those letters. And then the idea was people like me would stop asking questions about it, and advertisers would take them more seriously. Right. And then what happened is all those people left Huffington Post after a little while because it yeah, turned out it was still Huffington like, Post. Yeah, but they hired very officially serious people. They hired them And I wasn't across. really that. Yeah, you struck I was me, just you like a hardworking blogger. It struck me as, oh, they're hiring serious people, right. they're, they're huh. trying to level up. This is cosmetic, yeah. is my point. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. Uh, this is not really what they do. They're really in the listicle business, and yeah. this is a little sheen on top. But over time, you built this giant organization. How'd that happen? You know, I mean, I, I certainly always, I think, had it not worked, we started small, right? Like, we started basically covering politics, tech, a couple other things. And had we, had, I think had it not worked, we would have stopped. I hadn't really thought past the election. Um, but we were really one of the defining outlets of the 2012 election, broke a lot of news, understood the ecosystem and covered it better than I think a lot of our competitors. Um, and, you know, grew, had a lot of, we had a lot of growth, you know, revenue growth, traffic growth, all the kind. And so I think there was a sense that we should double down. I do remember in 2014, I always thought she should have used this story. A reporter from Reuters came by and, 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 and said to Jonah, like, yeah, isn't it kind of expensive to employ all these reporters? And he said, I think not in all seriousness, yeah, you know, we, when I hired Ben, I thought maybe I'll just have him like go to conferences and like this and talk about all the great journalism we're doing, but you know, not actually do it. It would yeah. be so much cheaper. And that seems like what a lot of people do. And then I thought, ah, fuck it, let's do it for real. <laughs> and you did. You, uh, yeah. At the peak, how I never big, thought, I never knew at, that that at was the an peak, option. How big was BuzzFeed News? 
Um, it depends how you count. This may be the peak in some by some ca- counts because we're doing a lot of there? video. We're doing a lot of video productions. In terms of reporters, it was probably 180, 190, and now it's more like 150. So that's bigger than a lot of newsrooms. Yeah, I mean it's bigger. It's bigger than di- a lot of digital newsrooms. I mean, the New York Times just to compare has more than 1,700 people. So it's tiny by the standards of the people who we who we really think of as our competitors. Punch above your weight compared to the New York Times, but compared to lots of daily newspapers. And, and, yeah, and, we're probably and, the size of like a mid-sized Metro Daily or, something, or smaller. And, and you've had to shrink, and we can talk yeah. about that. But uh, let's go back to 2012 and, and how you yep. made an impact, because we're at a politics festival, uh, how you made an impact in 2012 uh, in what you said was the most boring race of all time. How do, you, how do you make a name for yourself as a fledgling organization in, in 2012? I think we understood that Twitter was the front page of politics. That, that for that for that conversation, all the all the people who had been you know hitting refresh on my blog, but all the like, the journalists and the candidates themselves and the political operatives and the and the community of political junkies who were obsessed with it were living on Twitter. They weren't going to websites, and I had sort of seen that in my traffic on my blog, where I had gotten Politico to let me insert a little tra- you know one of those what was it extreme tracker so that Ooh. I could so that I could see all my traffic go. And I think so. What I just we, I hired a bunch of really scrappy, the four or five really really scrappy young reporters who were sort of too young to get hired anywhere real, but were incredibly talented. And um, told them Twitter is the front page of your website, not BuzzFeed.com. If somebody, if, if this story has already appeared on someone else has written it, you shouldn't write it because it's already there. All I want are exclusives, and we just, you know. We just put a ton of pressure on ourselves to break news several times a day. And you're not talking about literally publishing the story on Twitter. You're just saying work at a Twitter pace. Work. No, no, I mean, no, no. What I mean is that if you, if you have reported that Vox Media has acquired New York Magazine, I'm not going to go and report that because right. my audience already saw it on Twitter. I'm just going to skip that story. You're a hyper informed audience. And try to jump to the next one. Assume that you're writing for that kind of highest common denominator. And, and, and was there a story where you, you think you broke through or the, 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 the boys on the bus or whatever the equivalent of that was? Part of the ritual of it? this in, in this business is that you break a story, a larger outlet steals it from you, you whine very, very loudly. On Twitter. On Twitter. Everybody sides with you, and that's like the ritual of how you break through. So yeah, we, we broke the news that, um, God, this seemed so important at the time, that John McCain was going to endorse Mitt Romney on like my third or fourth day there. And... Um, yeah, and, and then that was, and then CNN reported it 15 minutes later, and didn't cite us. Probably because I'm sure they hadn't seen us because they weren't, you know, they were living in their own sort of alternate television news universe. And then we're very, and then every, and then Twitter, you know, everyone on Twitter said, "How could you rob BuzzFeed of credit?" And then the CNN people were very gracious, but it was and, a good moment. And were you doing like a BuzzFeed take on the news, or you were doing straight ahead political junkie McCain, McCain Romney news? Yeah, I think you weren't doing was, like McCain's no, favorite I, cat, Romney's favorite we, cat. We, we, we've always done some of that too. Right, but I think what we try not to do is like anything too. We're not trying to do the average of those things. Well, I think we were trying to do, in some sense, what social media was asking for, which in that moment was incremental pieces of information. By the way, skip ahead to, to now, and the New York Times has a very long story about all the theme music and, and yes. playlists that the that the candidates yeah. use, like really, really earnest about it. Yes, like that's their version of you guys from a few They're, years. They've ago. had a lot of versions of us through the yeah. years. Um, and let's end of you. Let's skip ahead to, to now. So now you guys are covering, you have a, you're still in a million people in the Democratic race, yeah. more than one in the Republican race. How are you thinking about covering that race today? What, how do you have to adapt your coverage to a new media universe? I think it's actually, it's partly a new media universe. It's also partly a new political universe. Like I think, our, I think it's changed a lot. Like I came up doing, you know, hacky political reporting, which I continue to enjoy. 
but I don't think that's what our audience wants. Like I think you know we've both heard, we both surveyed our audience, but also do you sort of hear feedback all the time? And I think that I was, I don't, you know, I was never comfortable with the sort of ex, more extreme notions of like politics as a game. It's a horse race. You should bet on it. It's all fun and games. There's no nothing real is involved. But I think that always flowed through a kind of political journalism that and and. I think that that really ended in 2016. You think that has ended? Because I don't see evidence of it ending when I read the stuff. I don't see it when I read the stuff, but when I see people's reaction to the stuff, I do. I think people are repelled by that, so by you that think, tone. So you think this is everyone I think, from I think the our, Times? At least our audience, you, which is younger, younger people who are maybe newer to, pol- to consuming political journalism, I think are really repelled by a certain kind of... I'm not, I don't want to sort of like name people, but they're obviously people associated with a certain kind of school of... Every, everyone sort of does values it. free horse race. Everyone journalism. does it. They do. They do. Who's leading in the polls? There's a new version this year. They say who's mean, raising this much money and that, does their money come from individual donors or large donors? It's I don't all mean that people don't want to know who's going to win. Obviously, they want to know who's going to win. I think they don't want you to seem like you're approaching it as a game. And that means certain kinds of stories, written with no context, aren't interesting anymore. I mean, the fundraising stuff, for instance, there's so much less coverage of it than there was four or eight years ago, and nobody cares. I mean, readers don't care. I just think more, it's more it's tonal and it's story selection, but I think like we were really trying to focus on, you know, what what did these people do when they actually had power? You know, if you're covering Mayor Pete, like the story of ours that blew up most about him was a story about his housing policy, and then they do want to know who, who these folks are. They want sort of to understand what makes them tick. I mean, a lot you guys of the, will still run stories to say so and so has left so and so's campaign and is now working for so and so's campaign, and that's relevant to like 200 people. You know, beat reporters, you sometimes do a story. Yeah. I mean, this podcast will be relevant to 50 or or 100 people. Um, Sometimes beat reporters do stories and get into depth in a way that's that's very relevant to like their beat. But and so I don't want to. And I'm not saying it's sort of not a diktat that we would never do a story like that. But I think we try really hard to put in a kind of context about why this stuff matters. So every four years, or or more often, there is a discussion about: Is the media going to cover the horse? Should the media be covering the horse? We shouldn't do it. I had Jay Rosen on; he's an NYU journalism professor. Yeah, he's a stop clock. Who's finally right? He's big on Twitter, and and he says we we shouldn't do it. And and when Jay Rosen talks about it, it's both persuasive and then totally non-persuasive because he's describing a world that should be. And then we go back to the real world where everyone talks about fundraising and and who's ahead. I think it's changed a lot. So you're saying that your audience rejects it both in, in terms of quantity and quality. They're telling you yeah. that and they're not reading those stories. They're reading yep. different kinds of stories. Totally. So Again, you think you found not, something that everyone else is missing? You know, I mean, it's, it's, I don't think it's, I think there are shades, right? I think, so, you know, I think if you look at any publication, you'll see a range of stuff that is some skewed more toward the very traditional sort of transactional political reporting and, and some that feels like something new. But no, I think the moment has really changed. I think you see it in the way the White House is covered, obviously, where news organizations are, I mean, it seems like 50% of all news is about how the New York Times covers Donald Trump. Like, obviously, that is a big And then the New York Times writes about how the rest of the media covers Trump. Yes. Get it all together. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you guys had a reckoning about how to cover Trump? We spent the first— well, the, We had a reckoning a, really early. It, during the campaign? We had a reckoning in the summer of—was it 2015? It was, because— we sent this great reporter of ours, McKay Coppins, out to cover to, to cover the Trump campaign and do kind of a profiley piece. And it snowed in New Ham- it snowed in New York, and the plane got di- from New Hampshire that he had somehow he got in a ride on the on the Trump plane, and it got diverted to Mar-a-Lago, and he spent the day at Mar-a-Lago and got you know and, and just wrote a piece that is totally recognizable today. That was about Trump as a sort of liar and a fraud, and sort of this sort of self-absorbed. Um, 
you know, bizarre, self-absorbed character sur- surrounded by yes-men. A really very unflattering portrait. And, we had this, and I think Trump really reacted with this picture of him behind the, in the Oval Office. With the, it had gilded the desk. And it was, I think the headline was 36 hours on the fake campaign trail with Donald Trump. And, you know, it was... You treated him like the cartoon that he turns out to have been. In fact, to be. Yeah. yeah, and I think so. Like, that was our point of view on him from the start. I kind of covered him a bit in New York. Like, this didn't seem... The one thing was that we thought he wasn't going to run. I mean, that we were totally wrong about that. And there's sort of a running joke on Twitter that probably has a little truth to it, that McKay trolled Trump into running, and this is all his fault. Um, but Trump, in a way that, again, has become familiar, totally lost his mind about the story. And among other things, put out an article in, like, got it to page six or somewhere that McKay... Breitbart did a whole oh, Breitbart, Breitbart, that McKay had been, like, ogling and hitting on the staff at Mar-a-Lago. McKay is a... Devout Mormon. That was part of the story. Even though he's a devout Mormon, he was still leering at women. Yeah, but who, but who really like lives his faith, and like it just was not applause of all the thing, of all the ways to go at him, and there were other ways. Like that was a crazy. It was, just, it was just so obviously just a blatant lie. It was like, oh, this is how we're, this is how we deal with this guy. And then we started showing up at events, and we were banned from them, which is fine. You know, access is a curse. Like that's, I really believe that. But it was really. But I think we kind of just lucked into like an early experience of what this was going to be like. But there was the initial, he's a joke, he's a cartoon, all right, he's running for real, and now he's leading, but this can't be real, and he's going to be this year's version of mm. Ben Carson or whomever. And, or, right. Um, Herman Cain. Herman Cain. Who's the woman from uh, Minnesota? Michelle Bachman. Thank you. She had a great week. I'm very ashamed of my, my fellow she Minnesotans. Had a, she had an amazing week in 2012. It was so much fun. And then that, and, and then the, that wasn't true, and, and, and then by the time... You know, we cut to the fall of 2016. You already have a sort of what? What, what did we miss? Yeah. And also, how do we cover a person who says things that are demonstrably untrue, and we don't can't even bring ourselves to call it a lie? And this yeah. rolling discussion that's continuing up through now. Yeah. The, the newest one I read in the New York Times about the media, the, the MSNBC t- turned away from a live press conference. Yeah. Uh, and do we? And, and is, should we do that? Should we? Should we carry the news live, but then fact-check it in real time? And how are you guys changing your approach? Well, I would say he's like really a you know, genius television executive who hacked the TV system in a way that was really effective. Like He provided free programming to these networks who love to get things for free. I mean, you know, like there were things, and I think TV had, has in some ways a harder challenge of what do you do with this thing that your audience really does want to watch and is being provided to you gratis. I mean, that's, and I don't think that the kind of web and print media had quite the same set of challenges and, I, and, and didn't screw up as badly, I would say. They're still very, especially um, the web, but right? I do it's very think, responsive to what people are clicking on. I do think there's this critique of, that, this long-standing critique of American journalism that Jay Rosen sort of embodies, which is, you know, which was when I was covering John McCain or Mitt Romney, um, or it was... Why aren't you saying he's a liar? Why aren't you saying he's a fascist? And to me, actually, the refusal by most journalists to, to say that, you know, when Romney says that his health care plan was in Massachusetts was not identical to, the, to Obamacare, we should be saying he's a liar, right? I think it's like, no, no, now we see what it is. Like, that's a policy dispute, and all politicians lie in various ways. And it's a, but, it's, but these are our policy arguments that it's appropriate and to cover as arguments. And you should reserve the word lie for when you like really know that the person, it's a very high bar, that the person, you know they know it's false. Like, it's an extremely high bar. It should be an extremely high bar. Like, I don't think that, the thing, I don't think that it's so much that journalism has changed as that we are 
covering something really different, have to acknowledge how different it is. And what is your audience telling you about how they want Trump covered? You guys are, are demonstrably a left-leaning, left, I mean, just like anybody else in New York media. Um, yeah, are, do, I, do you I concerned about that? Ourselves, I don't think of us as being to the political left of, of the New York Times. I think we're generationally coming from a somewhat different place. I think that it's tricky. You know, I think that a lot of, I'd rather talk about the Times than us. Um, <laughs> I think the Times is the challenge but that many others have too, where your audience will read any bad thing about, New York, about Donald Trump and they have to resist the temptation just to feed it to them. And then when they write something that contradicts a progressive narrative, they get people beating them up and canceling subscriptions, and that's a real problem. So I don't know if you said this publicly or, or privately inside BuzzFeed, because someone who worked or works there, uh, told me that you said that BuzzFeed News would be successful if the president knew who you were at some point. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's always true. Cover anyone you cover. If you're not... I mean, I think people underestimate how much the subjects of news coverage, if you've ever been a subject of news coverage, you do not underestimate this, um, care about what you write, like, a lot. Yeah. And if you're not... If, if the person you are covering doesn't know who you are, like, you got a problem. So... I wrote a story with another writer early in the Trump administration, sort of based around the idea that Trump was going to come after BuzzFeed News. And you explained to me this was a terrible story based on a stupid premise. Huh. You were at least half right. Um, but he did, he did call you out at the beginning. He said, you guys are garbage, right? This was the, well, about we the had, dossier. We, you know, well, we, it was to say, we, like, we did some reporting he didn't like. I, mean, we, I thought we earned it. Yeah. So he calls you out at the beginning of, of the administration. And from what I can tell, his media diet is almost entirely TV news that he watches during yeah. executive time, and then print newspapers that come yep. out of New York that he used to read in the 70s and 80s yep. and 90s. Um, and maybe someday someone prints out a Federalist or Breitbart or Politico thing for him and hands it yeah. to him. It doesn't seem like he would be consuming BuzzFeed no, news. No, yeah, I think if you said to him, hey, find me BuzzFeed or Vox or Breitbart, and gave him a computer or phone, like, I'm not sure he would know how to do that. Um, and that's, I think actually, I think that's a real challenge, a business challenge in a way for the new media. I think when you think about like new media, I mean, it's an old, you know, new media valuations were very, very high and crashed. And there, you know, and there's a lot of like, or not they crashed, but they are lower than they were. And I think there's a lot of reasons related to the advertising industry around that. But I also think that Trump kind of like looked backward and kind of re-centralized attention and at least the idea of what media was around the media of the 1980s. Like, it's crazy. People are paying attention to broadcast television. That hasn't happened in years. Yeah, it's weird, because he's partly and uh, I think that 100% like, TV and then he's 100% Twitter at the yeah, same time. Yeah, totally. But, but it's Twitter primarily as a method of programming television. Like, that's really fundamentally what he's using Twitter for, is to program television and to, and to dictate what you see on television, what he sees on television. I do think that you know it's this roadrunner. Like he's way like that. Those media like are just way. He's he's I think extended the life of a certain kind of cable news of certain broadcast properties. And when he says you guys need me, you yeah. love me. When I go away, you're gonna miss me. He's right. Yeah, and I think that obviously still digital, social, mobile communications are gonna win. Like that's not really in doubt. But he definitely has postponed that reckoning in a way that has. I think been tougher for the folks in our business, actually. Do you think about how BuzzFeed's going to operate in a post-Trump era? Um, no, we're just trying to survive the day. Because you're on the roadrunner. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. 
Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. So let's talk about surviving. Let's talk about business. We've, we've looked at this a few times. Um, you guys got very big at one point. BuzzFeed started having cuts. The newsroom was left alone for a while. Yeah. Uh, and then you guys had cuts last fall. Is that right? And this, this January. This January. Okay. Timeline's off. Um, so I imagine that's the first time you've ever had to be part of a layoff process. Yeah, that was the worst thing I've ever done in my career. And, and forever, Jonah Pretty had basically said something to the effect of, yeah, we know this is very expensive and it kind of doesn't make any business sense, but we like it. And then he would have various justifications for it. How did you guys get to the point where you said, no, actually, we're going to cut the newsroom as well? I don't think that was a direct quote. Um, and, and I think Jonah's point of view is not that it actually isn't that it doesn't make business sense. I think that the challenge is that it's right, that there's in the sort of crude business terms, you're doing it for the brand, not for a sort of, that it's not the highest ROI bit of the business. But the news has been at the core of like every great media business in the last hundred years. Um, so that's, that's the more direct quote. Uh, you know, I think, I mean, I, I don't think it's that complicated. We were spending more money than, you know, we had revenues, or we have revenues, I think even reported around $300 million. And it was not unreasonable to say, how are you losing money at that number? BuzzFeed as a whole BuzzFeed as had a whole. $300 million. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, but I think, and I think there was a sense, and we'd been through these years of extremely rapid growth. I think this is very. I mean, I think you see this in many, many, many startups. You assume that your trajectories keep continuing like this. And by the way, you're often encouraged to by your backers. We see this, in, yeah. like as you said, and you can go to Uber and, and, you, and, 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 and you keep whomever. growing a year or two too long. And you're told, grow, grow, grow. You're being rewarded for growth. Don't worry about profits. Yeah, and, you're, and in a way, you're betting on growth. Yeah. Obviously, it's difficult to operate with less people than you did before, but how did you think through, all right, we're going to operate with fewer resources. How, are, how do you pick what to focus on, where your strengths are? Yeah, I mean, I think it forced us to think about, like, what are we really good at? Where are we, where are we winning? Where are we playing to win? And, and where has the, you know, the constantly changing medium we live in, what's working? And so that's, you know, so I think we have areas, politics, tech, kind of information and misinformation, Culture, and in particular, a kind of like I think of our cultural coverage as a sort of, you know, how the Atlantic every month will have some 
great cover story about how terrible young people are. Yeah. We sort of try to publish the response to the. We're sort of the, the other side of that coin. Although the, the, the Atlantic on, on the internet writes a lot of really good stories. Most of them are about Derek Thompson about how millennials are screwed and it's the old guy's yeah. fault. Oh, I mean, I love like you know, I love Caitlin Flanagan. I love yeah. the stuff about how terrible the current generation is too. I just are we pro millennial or anti millennial here? I think we're you and I perhaps in this sort of middle generation where. I think I'm officially Gen X. Oh, are you? How old? Yeah. I'm 42. So. I'm older than that. Okay, never mind. But I think of myself, I, you know, somebody told me recently, somebody at one of the um, big famous American magazines, that they felt that the kind of core dynamic in legacy media right now is that the old people are scared of the young people. And, and I sort of think of our generation roughly as being able to sort of identify with both sides of that. I think of my generation as the ones, the last ones to grow up without the internet. Yeah, so you're just scared of the young people? No, they're fine, they're nice. I work with a lot of them. But I do remember what it was like to go to college and not have email. Yeah. Um, and which, the, the plus side by it is none of my high school or college years or even early 20 years are documented, <laughs> which I'm very thankful for all the time. At one point prior to the cuts, I think if I have my timeline right, there was a story about you meeting with uh, Peter Lapman, who's Lorraine Powell Jobs guy, uh, media guy, and talking about some deal to sort of sell BuzzFeed news to her or something like that. There's some truth to it. Apparently. Oh, yeah, we, we had, I mean, that, you that had, is the entire you had story. A drink? We had a drink, had that conversation. Possibly one or both of us was a little indiscreet in telling others about that conversation. Genuinely, that conversation immediately leaked to the FT. Yeah. Um, and immediately, I got a call from Kenny Lear saying, "That's the stupidest idea I ever heard of." Kenny Lear do is, that. The, is the chairman, Our chairman of, of Buzzfeed. The time. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, and I think, you know, actually, in a way, it was not intended as this, but it did. I think get our board and Jonah to think like, "Hey, do we like this idea? Do we think news is an important part of this?" media company of this bundle, or actually is this a, you know, a loss-making hobby that we should get rid of? And I think like very emphatically came down on the side of the former. That was my immediate experience. Because it struck me that, all right, well, that thing happened and Ben wouldn't go off just cooking up ideas about how to sell his, sell his operation um, uh, without some sort of like, yeah, that's a good thing to think about, Ben. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't overstate the extent to which I would not go out and get myself into trouble with my bosses. Definitely go have a drink after this. I think I, yeah. Did you guys talk about other ways to save BuzzFeed news or find another investor or find a backer or find some other way to... You know, I, don't, I mean, I don't think it... I, we don't feel like it, need, it up. I don't feel like it needs saving, honestly. Like, the thing that we have talked... I mean, you know, we've... BuzzFeed News... And it, you know, it's a, we're not a subsidiary, right? We're an operating unit of a company, and so you can slice that a lot of ways, what our revenues are, what our costs are. But that, those lines have converged every year for the last several, and I think, honestly, that most of our opportunities are, like, we have a lot of opportunities on the revenue side of that. Yeah, let's talk about some of those. You're doing, I, I see you periodically, well, I see you tweeting about this, because I confess I don't watch it, uh, talking about your, your news show in the morning. It's a streaming news show. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of news programming on Twitter, on Facebook, on Snap, that's been a good business for us. And, um, and, that's, and, and it's, it's very millennial and Gen Z-ish, but it's also, you know, you're bringing on actual U.S. senators and other people of note, yeah, and you're great, having real conversations. It turns out to be, an inc- it's, as a reporter, one of the things that as a sort of like web print reporter, 
you'll often get an email or a call that's like, hey, such and such important celebrity or fame or politician is in town. Do you want to meet them? And you're kind of like, I don't know. We kind of waste their time to meet me. I'm not going to do anything with it. And now we have this. We can just point a camera at them and cause them to make news. It's great. And, and do you conduct also, those interviews differently than you would if you were at the Today Show? or the Oh, yeah. yeah. I think we think of it as like, we don't want to ask any question that they would be asked on cable news. We want them to be like kind of coming into our generational um, tonal place and, and, and having a kind of different kind of conversation. But you don't want to end up asking the, the equivalent of the boxer briefs question. Totally right? do. So you do want and to And we do also that. want to ask them, you know, and get them to make news in the news of the day. But also, yes, we had Pete Buttigieg. We got him going on whether President James Buchanan was gay, on whether his gaydar could go through time and space. So you lean right into that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, you can't work for BuzzFeed and be embarrassed about working for BuzzFeed. That's not an option. And this year you're doing, you're doing text interviews? Text message interviews? Yeah, this has been really a fun thing. What it, what, uh, so just, I think we all get what a text message interview would be, but it's literally you texting them, and they're supposedly responding in real time. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know for sure that they're the ones with their hands on their right. phones. Who do, you think is like most, who do you think is least likely to actually be typing out their own text to you? Um, oh, I'm pretty sure that all the ones I've done it with so far, Kamala and, and um, Pete and uh, Julian Castro and stuff, I'm, you know, reasonably, they send a selfie. It would be a... These, I mean, all these people, all these politicians do is text each other all day. Like, it's, you know, if you read the coverage of the current impeachment stuff, it's all getting fomented in texting groups. I, I do think, I was chatting with some of Bernie's folks, and they were a little skeptical that he would do a lot of texting with me. And did he? Uh, I mean, Still I, the, the, the request is in. But, I, but I, they're kind of like, I, that's not this. He's not going to do that. You can yell at your phone, and it can just record, <laughs> and, and, and it will send the text out. That works you know, really pass, well. I'll, I'll pass that on, um, Yeah. <laughs> Ari, if you're listening. I won't even take credit for it. Yeah. It's fine. And do you think you learned something from texting a politician that you wouldn't get by talking to them? You know, I think it's not a good format for exploring, like, policy in depth. But it is, it's actually how human beings communicate now. And I think it's actually, you get a sense of who they are. Maybe more than you do. Like this, like, this is not how human beings communicate. What? And sitting on stage in front of lights and cameras, and that's usually when you see them. And I think actually you do kind of get a sense of what emoji they're using and how they frame the selfie and all like the normal things that people do when they actually communicate in this day and age. If they know um, what an emoji is. You can also, I mean, what kind of, you can also toss them a hard question and then it just kind of sits there and they can't dodge it, which is fun. Um, you see the dot, dot, dot. Yeah, dot, 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 stop. <laughs> or like you see that the response is two hours later. Um, but the, and the, the other thing I really like about it actually, and we're doing it, our books newsletter, we've been doing text interviews with authors. It's a is that it's not, this is not a moment of a lot of trust in media, and I think people are always suspicious of how you've edited an interview, of what the real context was. I think podcasts actually That's have this like advantage, podcasts, too. Yeah. Like, the context is all there. Yeah, sometimes I think, you know, because we leave every burp and fart and um and yeah. in there, and sometimes someone wants to clean it up and say, you know, you sounded kind of rude there. No, leave it all in. Then I think, no, maybe there is a point to edit yeah, for sure. at some point. For sure. And then, but te- text news, I mean, they're, they're also a very nice mobile format. But, like, yeah, my interview with Andrew, my DM interview with Andrew Yang constitutes, like, my entire relationship with Andrew Yang. I've never had any contact with Andrew Yang other than, like, hey, your staff is ignoring me. Could we do a DM interview? Sure has Tuesday. You know, like, and we just kind of put it all in there. You think Joe Biden's going to text you? I hope so. They seem, I, mean, I think he's happy to text people and does it all the time, and I've been chatting with his guys about it. See how I have not asked you a horse race question yet? I appreciate um, There that. is going to be an audience Q&A, so you can ask Ben all your horse race I'll questions or anything kind of, else I'll you give want. you very kind of moral answers. I want to go back to money for a second. You guys hired a, a revenue person for just for BuzzFeed News, or you're hiring a revenue well, we person? Hired, just for, we, I mean, it's a new thing let's, for you. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely investing more in the business of news. And I think this is not a novel 
situation for folks in, in media companies. I know people at NBC have this experience, which is that, is that news can be a pretty good business, but it's not as good a business as Tasty, our food channel, for instance. It's not as easy an advertising sell. And so if you have a big advertising sales team, they're not necessarily going to instinctively look at news. And so we've... And in fact, they might want to avoid it because they yeah. don't want to be around an apocalypse or a yeah, adver- E. coli adver- right. it's just, but, it's, but so I think, so usually you wind up having people whose dedicated job is to sell the news stuff. And so we're finally ramping that up and, and hiring a dedicated seller for the first time. And so we, we talked about uh, TV, video, that's an obvious way yeah. for you guys to make money there. I wrote a story once about the fact that Ben Smith had his own podcast. And this is very Ooh. funny, because it was like oh, three or four years ago. Oh, did we give you the exclusive? Ago. It was three oh. or four years ago, and I grudgingly wrote it. And I said, Ben Smith has a podcast, because everyone has a podcast. Yeah. And I was right, but it's embarrassing now, because a hundred times more people have podcasts right. now. Um, and then you stopped it. Yeah, I have no personal attention span was the problem. To do a podcast. To my podcast. I, mean, my, I thought my podcast wasn't that good, and it's a good example to kill your own thing. And you, but you, but we also then break a confidence, which is that you said, hey, that's a small audience, and we can do much more on video. And then you subsequently got rid of, I think, the rest of your podcast. Operation. Yeah, although I don't see those things as like, it's not like you do video in a, we were more, we've definitely been more, much more successful in video than in audio, but that's like our failure to succeed in audio. That's not, because one medium is superior. Because there is now a podcast boom. I don't know if you've heard about that. Yes. Everyone has, does it. Everyone now. You, everyone here has a podcast. Are you doing right? a daily? Does anyone not have a podcast? Do you have a daily podcast? We are going to have a three times no, you a personally? week. Well, I just tweet. Okay, I was misinformed then. I thought this would be up. To, I was told that this would be up tomorrow and that this was a daily, not by somebody who works for you. If this was a story about. And I was like, Peter's doing a daily podcast. If this was That's a story insane. about how my employer had uh, bought New York Media. Then yeah, we do turn that around. Oh, got it. Same day. Got it. No, but our our comms team had listened to that, and we're like all talking about it immediately after. Yeah. No, if I interview my boss and then my other new boss, that goes right up right away. Yep. And that's I don't know if you've interviewed your boss on stage or in a recorder, but it's not great. It's awkward. Yeah. Um, Because then you have to say, well, no, what's the real answer? And then it gets a little uncomfortable, more uncomfortable than this. Yeah, when Andrew Breitbart died, Jonah had known him pretty well, and I wound up writing up an interview with him. That uh, was, you interviewed Jonah about yeah, his memories. Of can Andrew I read Breitbart. that somewhere? Is it still up? Yeah, it's on the internet. Okay, good. Um, so you feel like this is a sustainable news operation now? Yes. Do you want to add to that? I mean, I think like the thing that like people in my position, like I did not come up thinking I wanted to like be in the media business, right? Like I'm a reporter. But I do think that anybody in my position, you sort of have to decide that that's incredibly important and that you're going to invest in it. And I think newsrooms, like our newsroom certainly, is like is just more interested in and willing to get excited about you know projects they're going to make the business sustainable and want to know about that. Um, yeah, and I think so. I think I mean I, th- I don't. And again, I don't think there's like a silver bullet or that it's magic. I think we're just sort of investing in the business more and, and we have seen our revenue steadily go up and losses go down. You know, that's, that's what you're trying to do in, what, in news. And we've also been really lucky to have this long-term commitment to real original journalism from, from our management. A couple big trends in media. Find a, find a rich person to sustain you. That's, the, that's what The Atlantic did with Lorraine Powell Jobs, I think, yep. after you guys have talked. And then the new idea, it's not a new idea, but the new new idea is to ask your readers to pay for you yeah. in some form. Um, so everyone is creating a subscription product or putting up a paywall. You guys are still free. I think you are asking readers to donate money. We, in a very lightweight way, experimented with a membership program last year. And like, 
you know, we're kind of thrilled that anyone did actually, and you know, a did modest number it? of people. No, it's still open. We see, and we, it's, it was like a, it's not. It, it was enough of a heartbeat that we're going to do that. We that we'll invest more in it and make it a real thing. But I think we're never going to be. I mean, it's really part of our DNA to be open to the internet, and so we're not going to, in any serious way, put up a paywall that blocks any substantial part of our content for most of our audience. I think you could imagine here and there, but you having special stuff. We send special emails out to subscribers. In some sense, that's a paywall to members. I, I mean, I guess I, I think that. One of the things like we've all learned in the last few years is that it's, it's, these are sort of, yes, of course we should be looking for direct revenue from our audience and also advertising. And also and, anything else we and can And also, do. yeah, production and also all the other things. And then uh, there's, a, a, there's a current stream of revenue that comes from uh, apparently Google and Facebook and Snap where they're paying, this has gone on for a few years in various forms, where they'll pay some amount of money to some news organizations to make some kind of content for them. And the rationale for it changes over time so I think this is like one of the big stories and sort of not yet quite noticed stories in our business right now, which is that for, right over the last several years, particularly Google and Facebook, and in other ways, smaller companies like Snap and Medium or you know, micro, like there are a lot of other players in that space, but have tried to sort of, in Google's space, in particular, kind of signal that they care about news by, so in some sense, hiring publishers to do interesting experimental projects that are not core to what the publisher is doing and not core to what Google is doing, but kind of, or you know, Facebook rolls out its you know, live video feature and pays publishers to play around with it, and then publishers get mad when it doesn't, it turned out that wasn't, didn't work and Facebook stopped paying them. I honestly never really understood, like, that seems fine to me. Like, if you were, in fact, working on that, you would have noticed these videos aren't working, nobody's really watching You guys them. did one really popular one where you blew up a yes, uh, watermelon, and that was it. Yeah, we did some, I mean, we did, it was a very classic thing, like suspense turns out to be a very Will powerful, the watermelon explode? Very the powerful yes, media value. But when? And they just kept putting rubber bands around the watermelon. So, so what do you think? But, how do you think news organizations should be thinking I, about the platform? So today? I think that has I think actually people don't haven't appreciated how different the thing that Facebook is now reportedly doing is. Which is a news tab. Yeah, they launched a news tab and essentially it's a syndication model. Like a like the way that like a cable affiliate fee model. They are paying news organizations to license the original reporting that the news organizations are already doing. It's, it's not, go do this fun project for us, spend most of the money that you take in doing this project. It's, we're going to license the stuff you're already doing. And they had done a version of that that, that was to, to, for their instant article thing, so let us host it, and that was considered this crazy breakthrough, and how do well, we had, feel about well, it? They kind of walked from that. Had too. that produced meaningful revenue, incremental revenue, that would have been great, right? I mean, because that ultimately is what these news organizations need. I think Facebook, and there are a couple other folks, I'm not sure it's all public yet, who, but uh, maybe an order of magnitude smaller, but meaningful places that are starting just to sing, snap, snap that are starting to syndicate news content. Snap reportedly is talking about it. I we think, can confirm that. What? We can confirm that they're doing it. I mean, I haven't. It's I don't true. know. I read it about it. I read about it in the information. I asked Sorry. someone at Snap. They told um, me. I think that like that's. I, I, I guess I don't think it's really probably sustainable for Google in the medium term to continue to just kind of j- to make all this money from news content and give us kind of these complicated speeches about how actually they're helping us while they derive all this value from us and don't pay us. You sound like Rupert Murdoch, who's been railing about this for a decade. I think, I think Rupert Murdoch is totally right about this and, that, and, and was way ahead. And it's funny, because Jonah, Jonah Peretti and Rupert Murdoch came at this from obviously, in many ways, totally different points of view. Rupert just being like, 
like in this very, very traditional television and newspaper, you pay us for this stuff, kind of like yep. slamming his fist on the table way. And, and Jonah, years ago, was saying, ultimately, we are going to be two competing platforms, what cable media, what media companies have been to competing cable networks and cable operators. And I think you are now starting, I mean, any of us have a lot of revenue in various ways from the platforms. I do think Google, and to a lesser degree, Microsoft and Apple, are going to, I don't think there's a long-term path, like culturally, politically, for them, particularly now that Facebook has just said, okay, well, what we're going to do is just follow that model, for them to say, oh, it's not feasible, it's not morally right. It's like, well, Facebook seems to figure out how to do it. So I think Google's position is but really untenable But these are small amounts here. of money. They're, they're small to smaller the platforms. Than, they're de minimis to them, yeah, below de minimis. Yeah. And even for the BuzzFeeds of the world, it's a couple million bucks here or there, which is real money. You can hire real reporters. Yeah, that's, that. a, that's a meaningful amount of money to a news organization. And, but for years and years and years, Google didn't do this, and Facebook didn't do this, and we were at a meeting with Mark Zuckerberg when this was bandied about a year ago, and he just gave us this blank fish look when we asked, asked yeah, about it, cut to now, and they're doing it. Yeah, and I think Google right now is, if you talk to the guy who runs news at Google, Richard Jingris, will give you a long, long and thoughtful explanation of how this is how this is against their values and their principles and they'll never do it. Just the same way they were explaining how taking Alex Jones off the platform was, you know, they would love to, but it was against their principles and they could never do it. And that's just true until the day it's not. And so the thought among the media guys was always, well, they have to because we're so important to them. And I, they're, we're not important to them, right? We're just a piece of data in their corpus. Yeah, I think data. that's what they, I think that's what they have, are starting to realize. I think I think the media guys were right. It was just took a while. Were they right, or is just politically now this is just a way to get media organizations, which are influential and, by the way, cover you, to, yeah. to be less angry at you? Um, I love how people in the tech world say politically, like it's an afterthought. It has been in Silicon Valley. It has. Up until, say, when? 2016. Yeah, not anymore. I mean, I think, there, I think another way to view it is that that there might turn out, to, if, they, if, they, if they make decisions that are like, hey, we're going to try to destroy this very important American industry, the news industry, that like that might have consequences for them. I don't think that's crazy. I think that's starting to be true. But you could say that for any industry they have disrupted and continue to disrupt. Yeah, and I think you're, and I think you're right. And I th well, they do, but I think you're starting, I just think there's, I mean, just like obviously there's been a huge change in the climate in which they're operating. And you, you do believe, in, you're a tech lash believer. You don't think that's something that we've cooked up in New York, in Washington? I mean, I mean, well, I guess people, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a tech-lash believer in the sense that I don't, it's not driven by poll. I think people misunderstand the notion that there's a political backlash like now everyone on the street hates Amazon. Everyone the, loves Amazon, the and Amazon may be the most destructive that the uh, company there. People in Washington who actually make regulatory decisions, Democrats see these companies as sort of unscrupulous capitalists who, by the way, elected Donald Trump. Republicans see them as a liberal conspiracy to screw them. And so, I mean, I've almost never seen a situation in which you have an industry this powerful and important with no friends. I think it's incredibly difficult. Apple is the exception to this, actually, but the others are just in this, like, crucible in D.C. It's really But brutal. by the way, the Republican answer to what the problem with tech is and the Democratic answer to what the problem with tech is, they're not even remotely speaking the same language. That's why I think actually nothing uh, will happen. No, I don't think that. I think that's totally wrong. Like, I think if you talk to people who've met with, if you talk to, like, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders camp people who have recently gone in and met with the Justice Department lawyers who are deciding whether they want to try to break these companies up or just impose a new regulatory regime, they're totally on the same page. 
But if you go talk to Josh Hawley, he's talking about the fact that Facebook is supposedly suppressing oh, free speech, yeah. and it's a made-up. It's a it's yeah, it's made-up. Right. No. When they go and they either attempt to pass some some major regulation or to break up the companies, the Elizabeth Warren will go out and say the reason we need to do this is because markets need to operate differently. And Josh Hawley will go out and say the reason we need to do this is because this is a liberal conspiracy to suppress speech. And you think they will end up in the same place and there will be actual regulation and real meaningful effect? I think there is a real possibility that these companies get broken up, the Google in particular. I think that's not a joke. So this is very exciting. I want to keep talking about it, but I also want to offer you guys a chance to ask questions. We've got about 10 minutes. Does anyone want to raise a hand? There's a microphone or two involved, too. Hi there. Hi. Uh, ben, thanks for being here. Peter, thanks for the interview, bringing your podcast. Uh, still dossier. Yes. Can you take us back into the newsroom or when the editors or Jonah and you all were talking and trying to decide what to do and you sort of came out differently than most of the mainstream media? What was the calculus? What was the decision process? And what were those conversations? Sure. Um, let's see, this is the sort of winter of 2016, 2017, and we, like a number of news organizations in late 2016, had gotten a hold of this, I guess, like 36-page set of reports of, uh, that were that ranged from th- whose contents ranged from, you know, really shocking allegations that you've all heard to things that are now obviously true, like there was a coordinated Russian intelligence operation to influence the election on behalf of Donald Trump. Like that, which was, by the way, when this was first, when these things were put together in in mid-2016, that was like quite a thing to say. By the time, even by the time we reported it in early 2017, that was obvious. And I think a lot of news organizations were looking at these, and like us, a lot of them were sending reporters to Moscow and to Prague and to various other places and trying to figure out what was really going on, you know, whether the underlying claims were true. Um, and then, and I think there was also a sense of like, man, everybody in Washington is talking about and has seen these things. Like all the intelligence officials, the members of Congress, the journalists. And it's affecting what they do. Like John McCain is sure is acting weird toward Donald Trump. Like what's going on here? It wasn't just like a, it wasn't like somebody sends you an email with a bunch of weird claims. Like the document itself had a kind of Washington currency that was influencing the course of public events. Everyone is talking about this thing, but not in public. And powerful people are making decisions based on it, right? So we had started talking about, like, what's the threshold at which you just say, hey, we do not know whether these allegations are true, but this document itself is news and is important. And then CNN reported um, that the document had been briefed to two presidents of the United States, that they'd taken Obama and Trump aside and said, you know, we're going to tell you about this document because it's so important. Whatever the standard is, from my perspective, for is this thing important enough to report on, that cleared that bar. CNN's talking about it. No, the, no, it has been briefed by the head no, of the, the FBI and the CIA to two, to two successive presidents. That, like that's, a, that's as bad as has a bar for, the, for public, public interest, for what is a public document. And it seemed like you more or less hit publish as soon as the CNN had reported that. Yeah, a few hours later. So you, you basically threw it up there. There was a story that it was attached well, we done, to it. we done many weeks of reporting around mm-hmm. it. It wasn't, it wasn't like we didn't know. It wasn't like we got it and didn't know what it was. And but, asked, that, but I thought that was a very clear decision to pull. Yeah, it and was, I've asked you this question before. The discussion internally with Jonah, with lawyers, 
did you have that prior to publishing it? Yeah, we did. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, definitely did. I mean, particularly with lawyers, with Jonah, but also, yes. You know, at the time, I'm, you, know, you guys, I think rightly, I think you were right to publish it, and, and lots of people came to your defense, others criticized it. Um, and what I never heard was anyone complaining internally at BuzzFeed. And since, since I have, people said, oh, you know, that's actually not put us in the best place, and I wish there'd been more discussion, and it seemed rushed. Did you get feedback from, from the people who worked for you? It's not a thing I'd ever thought about that hard before, but when you're working in a newsroom and you make these very fast, very like kind of high conflict decisions with huge consequences, and you have colleagues suddenly who have to go out and explain it to if they're salespeople to their clients, if they're you know your editor in Berlin wakes up in the morning with his phone is blown up because everybody in German media wants to know what the hell happened. And he has an email from you saying, hey, we just did this and here's why. But there's no feasible way to include all these people in these decisions. And I think if you look at like some of the great media misses of the last few years, it's where like, hey, we had this huge story about these Access Hollywood tapes. And so we had like 19 meetings until the Washington Post got it. Like that's, and, and, it's, and I think it's, it's a tough organizational thing. I, but my experience was like incredible support and kind of solidarity from people on our business side, from people all, all over the company, although it, although it obviously put people in a difficult position. And you ended up with a lawsuit, or more than one lawsuit, right? Based one, on one that was, I think, quite serious suit. in, in, in um, federal court And in are you Florida. guys out of court now? Are you done? Um, you know, you're never totally done. I think, I think it may be on appeal, but this uh, Republican judge in Florida wrote an extre- a really important ruling saying, sort of, I think in some ways expanding the sense of like what is... A, like a public document, what's the public interest, and found that this clearly was. Good. More questions for Ben? One back here. So you guys have been doing a lot of great reporting from even before 2016 about the, uh, what, the inf- what the internet and the information ecosystem has done to how we perceive things as true. And obviously with the idea of deepfakes, there's been a lot of things that, be, uh, thing that people are talking about coming on stream. Is, are things just going to get worse, do you think, in terms of how people can believe things and how easy it is for a politician to lie, or is there hope on the horizon? Is there hope? I don't know, Nikki. Um, the, you know, I, I think that we, the journalists and media consumers, are so much more sophisticated than they were. Like, I think that people are starting to, like, people broadly have just sort of realized, like, oh, I can't, it, you know, that there is this, this toxic, polluted ecosystem. And so I, I actually think... I mean, you haven't seen a, the, the sort of idea that these deep fakes that my colleague Charlie Warzel scared everybody about, you know, not that long ago, were going to sort of derail and overtake the election. That could happen. There's a new new theory that says everyone now is so concerned about deep fakes they won't believe real news. That Maybe I think Charlie wrote. I, I Did you write that, Charlie? Think, Charlie I actually that. think that is that is in some ways the way that a lot of this is going to be used is that you know Donald Trump says this transcript was fake, but I don't know. You haven't seen that happen yet. I'm sure it will in some places. I'm sure that there are definitely, like, and things that may not happen at the sort of highest political level where there are still kind of elite gatekeepers. I think the way you see, like, deepfakes used for, like, really kind of crude and gross sexual harassment on the Internet is horrible and damaging. It doesn't necessarily a political issue, but, but there are other kind of toxic uses that may be on a smaller scale, on a more local scale. Do you think you ever get back to whatever media environment we had in the 1950s, or Aaron Sorkin believed the 1950s, where we all turn to a CBS or an NBC and whatever they say, we reflect, we just automatically believe it's received wisdom? Yeah, it's going to be BuzzFeed, Vox, and Vice. <laughs> all right, I'll take it. Those are the three networks. How do you pronounce Pulitzer? It's Pulitzer or Pulitzer? 
You know, I don't know. Um, but you want one. Pulitzer. Yeah, it turns out we do. Every, I, used to be, every, I used to be kind of a snob about awards. I think in my heart I still am. Every spring you complain about not getting one. I would never complain. We've been finalists a couple times, which yeah, is a huge twice. honor. Um, yeah. when, when, when do you think you, you'll be recognized for your work? Do you think you, you get the, the, the Lifetime Achievement Award at some point? Huh. You know, we're just honored to be considered. You're very politic, Ben Smith. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks to you guys for hosting us. Thanks to the Texas Tribune. Thanks again to Ben for coming down to Texas to talk with me. Thanks to the Texas Tribune for hosting us. That is a very cool event. If you can get down there, you should check it out. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to our producers and editors, Zach, Jelani, and Joel. Thanks to our sponsors who bring this show to you for free. Lots more Recode Media coming your way very soon. <laughs>